Section 4 of A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia by Alan Clasey. Section 4. Camping Up Black Forest to Eagle Hawk Gully. Sunday, 12. A lovely summer morning, which raised our spirits to something like their usual tone, with the exception of our gallant captain, who resigned his post, declaring it is his intention to return to Melbourne with the four returning diggers. Poor fellow, their awful account of the Black Forest had been too much for his courage. Gregory was elected in his place, and wishing him a pleasant trip home, our journey was resumed as usual, and we entered the forest. Here the trees grow very closely together. In some places they are so thickly set that the rear guard of the escort cannot see the advance guard in the march. There is a slight undergrowth of scrub, we saw some of the choicest of the Erica tribe in full bloom, like a beautiful crimson waxen bell blossom, and once whilst walking, which I frequently did to relieve the monotony of being perched on the dray by myself, I saw a fine specimen of the Oriludia at the foot of a tree growing from the wood. It was something like a yellow sweet pea, but really too beautiful to describe. The barks of the trees, and also the ground, have a black, charred appearance, hence the name of the forest. This is said to have been caused by its having once been on fire. Many of the ambuscades of the noted Douglas were passed, and the scenes of some most fearful murders pointed out. We only halted once, so anxious were we to leave behind us this dreaded spot and at sunset reached the borders of the five-mile creek. Monday, 13. Another fine day, crossed the five-mile creek by means of a rickety sort of bridge. There are two inns here, with plenty of accommodation for man and beast. We patronised neither, but made the best of our way towards Kyneton. Our road lay through a densely wooded country, till we arrived at Jacob's station. This we left, and turning to the right, soon reached Kyneton, which lies on the river Campasp. Carlshrew lies to the right, about three miles distant, on rather low land. This is the chief station of the government escort. The barrack accommodation is first-rate, with stapling and paddocks for the horses, etc., Kyneton is about sixty-one miles from Melbourne. There are two large inns, with ample accommodation for four hundred people between them, several stores, with almost every needed article, a neat little church, capable of holding nearly three hundred persons, with a school and parsonage. There is a resident magistrate and constabulary, with a police court and jail in progress of erection. The township is rather straggling, 
but what houses there are have a very picturesque appearance. The only drawback to this little town is the badness of the streets. Although it is rather on an elevated spot, the streets and roads from the loamy nature of the sod are a perfect quagmire, even abominable in summer time. The charges here are high, but not extortionate, as, besides the two inns alluded to, there are several coffee shops and lodging houses, so competition has its effect even in the bush. The Campasp is a large river, and is crossed by a substantial timber bridge. We still adhered to our original plan of camping out. A few necessaries were purchased in the town, and after continuing our journey to a little distance from it, we halted for the night. Tuesday, 14. This morning commenced with a colonial shower, which gave us all a good drenching. Started about eight o'clock. Returned to Kyneton, crossed the bridge, and passed several farmhouses. The country here is very changeable, sometimes flat and boggy, at others very hilly and stony. We were obliged to ford several small creeks, evidently tributaries to the Camp Asp, and at about ten miles from Kyneton, entered the Colliburn Range, which is thickly wooded. The river itself is about fourteen miles from Kyneton. Here we camped in the pouring rain. Some of our party walked to the town of Malmesbury, about a mile and a half from our camping place. The town consisted of, of about three tents, and an inn dignified by the appellation of the Malmesbury Hotel. It is a two-storied, weatherboard and pale house, painted blue, with a lamp before it of many colours, large enough for half a dozen people to dine in. It, the inn, not the lamp, is capable of accommodating two hundred people, independent of which there is a large tent, similar to the booths at a fair, about one hundred feet long by thirty wide for the convenience of those who prefer sleeping under cover when the house is full. Being hungry with their walk, our comrades dined here, for which they paid three shillings sixpence apiece. Ale was one shilling sixpence a glass. Brandy two shillings per half glass, or nobbler. Cheese four shillings. Sixpence a pound bread five shillings the four-pound loaf, wine twenty-five shillings a bottle. By the time they returned, we had struck our tents, intending to cross a muddy bank creek that lay in our road that evening, as we were told that the waters might be too swollen to do it next day. The water reached above their waist, and as my usual post was very insecure, I was obliged to be carried over on their shoulders, which did not prevent my feet from being thoroughly soaked before reaching the other side, where we remained all night. Wednesday, 15. Rainy day again, so much so that we thought it advisable not to shift our quarters. In the afternoon, three returning diggers pitched their tents not far from ours, 
they were rather sociable, and gave us a good account of the diggings. They had themselves been very fortunate. On the same day that we had been idly resting on the borders of the Black Forest, they had succeeded in taking twenty-three pounds weight out of their claim, and two days after, two hundred and six ounces more, making, in all, gold to the value, in England, of about eighteen hundred pounds. They were returning to Melbourne for a spree, which means to fling their gains away as quickly as possible, and then, as soon as the dry season was regularly set in, they meant to return to Bendigo for another spell at work. On representing to them the folly of not making better use of their hard-earned wages, the answer invariably was, Plenty more to be got where this came from, an apt illustration of the proverb, Light come, light go. Two of these diggers had with them their licenses for the current month, which they offered to sell for ten shillings each. Two of our company purchased them. This, although a common proceeding, was quite illegal, and, of course, the two purchasers had to assume for the rest of the month the names of the parties to whom the licenses had been issued. As evening approached, our new acquaintances became very sociable, and amused us with their account of the diggings, and the subject of licensing being naturally discussed led to our being initiated into the various means of evading it, and the penalties incurred thereby. One story they related amused us at the time, and as it is true, I will repeat it here, though I fancy the lack of oral communication will subtract from it what little interest it did possess. Before I commence, I must give my readers some little insight into the nature of the license tax itself. The license, for which thirty shillings, or half an ounce of gold, is paid per month, is in the following form. Victoria Gold License, number 1710, September 3, 1852. The bearer, Henry Clements, having paid to me the sum of one pound ten shillings on account of the territorial revenue, I hereby license him to dig, search for, and remove gold on and from any such crown land within the upper Loddon district, as I shall assign to him for that purpose during the month of September 1852, not within half a mile of any head station, this license is not transferable, and to be produced whenever demanded by me or any other person acting under the authority of the government, and to be returned when another license is issued. Signed, B. Baxter, Commissioner. At the back of the license are the following rules. Regulations to be observed by the persons digging for gold or otherwise employed at the gold fields. 1. Every licensed person must always have his license with him, ready to be produced whenever demanded by a commissioner, 
or person acting under his instructions, otherwise he is liable to be proceeded against as an unlicensed person. 2. Every person digging for gold or occupying land without a license is liable by law to be fined for the first offence not exceeding five pounds, for a second offence not exceeding fifteen pounds, and for a subsequent offence not exceeding thirty pounds. 3. Digging for gold is not allowed within ten feet of any public road, nor are the roads to be undermined. 4. Tents or buildings are not to be erected within twenty feet of each other, or within twenty feet of any creek. 5. It is enjoined that all persons at the gold fields maintain and assist in maintaining a due and proper observance of Sundays. So great is the crowd around the commissioner's tent at the beginning of the month that it is a matter of difficulty to procure it, and consequently the inspectors rarely begin their rounds before the tenth, when, as they generally vary the fine according to the date at which the delinquency is discovered, a non-licensed digger would have the pleasure of accompanying a crowd of similar offenders to the commissioners sometimes four or five miles from his working place, pay a fine of about three pounds, and take out a license. After the twentieth of the month, the fine inflicted is generally from five pounds to ten pounds, and a license, which is rather a dear price to pay for a few days' permission to dig, as a license, although granted on the thirtieth of one month, would be unavailable for the next. The inspectors are generally strong-built, rough-looking customers. They dress like the generality of the diggers, and are only known by their carrying a gun in lieu of a pick or shovel. Delinquents unable to pay the fine have the pleasure of working it out on the roads. Now for my story, such as it is. Mike and Robert were two as good mates as any at the Mount Alexander diggings. They had had a good spell of hard work, and, as is usually the way, returned to Melbourne for a holiday at Christmas time. And then it was that bright eyes of Susan Hinton first sowed discord between them. Mike was the successful wooer, and the old man gave his consent for Mike with one exception, had contrived to make himself a favourite with both father and daughter. The exception was this. Old Hinton was a strict disciplinarian, one of what is called the good old school. He hated radicals, revolutionists and reformers, or any opposition to church or state. Mike, on the contrary, loved nothing better than to hold forth against the powers that be, and it was his greatest boast that government had never pocketed a farthing from him in the way of a license. This, in the old man's eyes, was his solitary fault, 
and when Mike declared his intention of taking another trip to the lottery fields, before taking a ticket in the even greater lottery of marriage, he solemnly declared that no daughter of his should ever marry a man who had been openly convicted of in any way evading the license fee. This declaration from any other man who had already promised his daughter in marriage would not have had much weight, but Mike knew the stern, strict character of Hinton, and respected this determination accordingly. The day of their departure arrived, and with a tearful injunction to bear in mind her father's wishes, Susan bade her lover farewell, and Robert and he proceeded on their journey. Full of his own happiness, Mike had never suspected his comrade's love for Susan, and little dreamt he of the hatred against himself to which it had given birth, hatred the more to be dreaded, since it was concealed under a most friendly exterior. For the first month Mike behaved to the very letter of the law, and having for the sum of one pound ten shillings purchased his legal right to dig for gold, felt himself a most exemplary character. Success again crowned their efforts, and a speedy return to Melbourne was contemplated. In the ardour of this exciting work another month commenced, and Mike at first forgot and then neglected to renew his licence. The inspector rarely came his rounds before the 14th. The neighbourhood was considered deserted, fairly worked out. He'd never come round there. Thus argued Mike, and his friend cordially agreed with him. Lose a day's work standing outside the commissioner's tent, broiling in a crowd, when two days would finish the job. Not he, indeed. Mike might please himself, but he shouldn't get a license, and this determination on the part of his mate settled the matter. In one respect, Mike's self-security was not unfounded. The gully in which their tent was now pitched was nearly deserted. Some while previous, there had been a great rush to the place, so great that it was almost excavated. Then the rush took a different direction, and few now cared to work on the two or three spots that had been left untouched like many other localities considered, worked out, as much remained in the ground as had been taken from it, and as each day added to their store, Mike's hilarity increased. It was now the tenth of the month. Their hole had been fairly bottomed, a nice little nest of nuggets discovered, their gains divided, and the gold sent down to the escort office for transit to Melbourne. A few buckets full of good washing stuff was all that was left undone. Today we'll finish that, thought Mike, and to it he set with hearty good will, to the intense satisfaction of his comrade, who sat watching him at a little distance. Suddenly Mike felt a heavy hand upon his shoulder. He looked up and saw before him the inspector. He had already with him a large body of defaulters, and Mike little doubted, but that he must be added to their number. 
old Hinton's determined speech, Susan's parting words and tears, flashed across his mind. "'You've lost your bonny bride,' muttered Robert, loud enough to reach his rival's ears. Mike glanced at him, and the look of triumph he saw there roused every spark of energy within him, and it was in a tone of well-assumed composure that he replied to the inspector, "'My license is in my pocket, and my coat is below there,' and without a moment's hesitation sprung into his hole to fetch it. Some minutes elapsed. The inspector waxed impatient. A suspicion of the truth flashed across Robert's mind, and he too descended the hole. There was the coat and the license of the past month in the pocket, but the owner had gone, vanished, and an excavation on one side which led into the next hole, and thence into a complete labyrinth underground, plainly pointed out the method of escape. Seeing no use in ferreting the delinquent out of so dangerous a place, the inspector sulkily withdrew, though not without venting some of his ill-humour upon Robert, at whose representations made to him the day previous he had come so far out of his road. But let us return to Mike. By a happy thought he had suddenly remembered that whilst working some days before in the hole, his pick had let in daylight on one side, and the desperate hope presented itself to his mind that he might make a passage into the next pit, which he knew led into others, and thus escape. His success was beyond his expectation, and he regained the open air at a sufficient distance from his late quarters to escape observation. Once able to reflect calmly upon the event of the morning, it required little discrimination to fix upon Robert his real share in it, and now there was no time to lose in returning to Melbourne, and prevent by a speedy marriage any further attempt to set his intended father-in-law against him. The roads were dry, for it was the sultry month of February, and two days saw him beside his lady-love. Although railroads are as yet unknown in Australia, everything goes on at railroad speed, and a marriage concocted one day is frequently solemnised the next. His eagerness, therefore, was no way remarkable. No time was lost, and when, three days after Mike's return, Robert, with his head full of plots and machinations, presented himself at old Hinton's door. He found them all at a well-spread wedding breakfast, round which were gathered a merry party, listening with a digger's interest to the way in which the happy bridegroom had evaded the inspector. Mike had wisely kept the story till Susan was his wife. Thursday, 16. With great delight we hail the pronostications of a fine day, and after having eaten a hearty breakfast on the strength of it, we recommenced our travels, and crossed the Colliburn Bridge. The Colliburn is a fine river, running through a beautiful valley 
bounded with green trees. The bridge is a timber one, out of repair, and dangerous. A township called Malmesbury has been laid out here in small allotments, with the expectation of a future city. But as yet not a house has been erected, with the exception of the hotel before mentioned, putting one in mind of the American Eden in Martin Chaslewit. A mile beyond the Culliban are the washing huts of John Orr's station, and about three miles to the left is his residence. The house is stone with verandas. The garden and vineyards are prettily laid out. After passing the bridge, we took the right-hand road, which led us through a low country and across two or three tributary creeks. We then reached the neighbourhood of Saw Pit Gully, so called from the number of saw pits there, which formerly gave employment to numerous sawyers, whose occupation, it is almost needless to state, is now deserted. It is surrounded with fine large timber. There are several coffee shops, a blacksmith's and wheelwright's, and a neat little weatherboard inn. At this part our German friends bade us farewell to follow out their original plan of going to Forest Creek. They had persuaded four others to accompany them, so our number was reduced to fifteen, myself included. The scenery now became very beautiful, diversified with hill and dale, well wooded, with here and there a small creek, more agreeable to look at than to cross, as there were either no bridges or broken-down ones. The loveliness of the weather seemed to impart energy even to our horses, and we did not pitch our tents till we had travelled full sixteen miles. We were now close beside Mount Alexander, which is nearly covered with timber, chiefly white gum, wattle and stringy bark. Friday, 17. A lovely morning. We proceeded in excellent spirits, passing some beautiful scenery, though rather monotonous. During the first few miles we went across many little creeks, in the neighbourhood of which were indications that the diggers had been at work. These symptoms we hailed with intense delight. Gregory told us the history of a hole in this neighbourhood, out of which five people cleared thirteen thousand pounds worth of gold each in about a few hours. In lieu of sinking a shaft, they commenced in a gully, colonial for valley, and drove a hole on an inclined plane up the side of the hill or rise. However wet the season, they could never be inconvenienced, as the very inclination would naturally drain the hole. Such a precaution was not needed, as the whole party were perfectly satisfied with the success they had had without toiling for more. The country between here and the Porcupine Inn is exceedingly beautiful, not unlike many parts in the lowlands of Wales. About eight miles on the road we pass Barker's Creek, which runs through a beautiful vale. 
We camped this evening about four or five miles from Bendigo, and some miles from the Porcupine Inn, which we left behind us. The Porcupine is a newly built inn on an old spot, for I believe there was an inn in existence there before the diggings were ever heard or thought of. The accommodation appears on rather a small scale. Near it is a portion of the station of the Messrs. Gibson, through which the public road runs. Some parts are fine, others wooded and swampy. Saturday, 18. Fine day. We now approached Bendigo. The timber here is very large. Here we first beheld the majestic iron bark, eucalypti, the trunks of which are fluted with the exquisite regularity of a Doric column. They are in truth the noblest ornaments of these mighty forests. A few miles further, and the diggings themselves burst upon our view. Never shall I forget that scene. It well repaid a journey, even of sixteen thousand miles. The trees had been all cut down. It looked like a sandy plain or one vast unbroken succession of countless gravel pits. The earth was everywhere turned up. Men's heads in every direction were popping up and down from their holes. Well might an Australian writer, in speaking of Bendigo, term it the Carthage of the Tyre of Forest Creek. The rattle of the cradle as it swayed to and fro, the sounds of the pick and shovel, the busy hum of so many thousands, the innumerable tents, the stores with large flags hoisted above them, flags of every shape, colour, and nation, from the lion and unicorn of England to the Russian eagle, the strange yet picturesque costume of the diggers themselves, all contributed to render the scene novel in the extreme. We hurried through this exciting locality as quickly as possible, and after five miles travelling, reached the Eagle Hawk Gully, where we pitched our tents, supped, and retired to rest, though, for myself at least, not to sleep. The excitement of the day was sufficient cure for drowsiness. Before proceeding with an account of our doings at the Eagle Hawk, I will give a slight sketch of the character and peculiarities of the diggings themselves, which are, of course, not confined to one spot, but are the characteristics that usually exist in any auriferous regions, where the diggers are at work. I will leave myself, therefore, safely ensconced beneath a tent at the Eagle Hawk and take a slight and rapid survey of the principal diggings in the neighbourhood, from Saw Pit Gully to Sydney Flat. End of Section 4